You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Gilda Radner. And, uh, <laughs> okay, now. I can't believe this is her handwriting. This is a real honor. Like, seriously, this is huge. Are these actually her papers? Like, what she... This is, um, Gilda Radner, her voice and her writing. She was the very first performer chosen for the cast of Saturday Night Live. Dear Rosanna, Rosanna Dana. From the time I was a kid, I loved to pretend. I can't imagine how I got famous. I just took the next job and millions of people were watching me do it. There was so much in the world that had yet to be carved out for women. The guys weren't saying, hey, let's think of a way to put Gilda in the sketch. But she was always funny. I suppose being in the thick of it, I don't even realize what strides we were making. Boom, ba, ba, boom, boom, The ratings turned them from, what, 2 million into 5 million? 30. 30 million? <laughs> I mean, they just loved her. The pressure was enormous. I don't even think we knew the words eating disorder. Gene created a family atmosphere. He made her feel that she deserved life. I always felt I can do anything if people are laughing. One morning, she just said, something's wrong with me. The comedian who does all this stupid stuff gets the most unfunny thing in the world. How often do we get to know what we're actually made of? She felt that she could be of help, and that's exactly what she did. I've never wanted to be anything else. Everything she did, you could tell she was having a lot of fun. Gilda Radner had a great time. People want to know, well, what made you funny? And I know what made me funny. My biggest motivation... has always been love. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking to Lisa D'Apolito, the director of the new documentary Love Gilda, which is all about Gilda Radner. If you are unfamiliar with Gilda Radner, well, I don't know what to tell you other than to watch this documentary. Even if you think you know Gilda Radner and her story, definitely check this out. It is fantastic. It is opening today, September 21st at Select Theatres. Check for local showtimes, and I will have links to where you can find out more information over at the website projection-booth.com. Thank you very much, and enjoy the interview. How did you decide to get into show business? Well, I was an actress as a kid, so I don't know. It just kind of happens. I think if you want to be an actor and you love theater and performing, that just sort of happens. I don't, I don't know. It's like a, you, you want to do it. It's like this bug that you can't explain. That was kind of the roots of it. And then over the years, I, you know, I went into producing and directing, but I always really loved performers and acting and shooting and editing. And I always loved everything like that since I was little. How did you decide to make a documentary about Gilda Radner? I had been working in branded content for a long period of time, like doing documentaries, but they were basically for corporations or nonprofit groups. Somehow I fell into doing nonprofit videos for Gilda's Club. 
in New York City, um, and there's 18 of them throughout the country, but the one on Gilbert Club that I went to was the original one that was founded by Jean Wilder and Gilbert's friends after Gilbert passed away. And her presence is so present there. Even though she passed away 20-something years ago, her murals all around and people have read her book and many of the members talk about her and her journey with cancer. And I just felt like she had such a unique, like a double legacy, this amazing legacy in comedy, but also this legacy in cancer. And I just thought her her story was so important. When was that moment when you said, this is going to be a project, this is something I want to do? There was one moment when I was interviewing the kids at Gilda's Club. At the beginning, the film was I was thinking it was going to be more about Gilda's Club than Gilda Radner herself. I was just filming the little kids, and they have a camp for kids called Camp Sparkle, which is named after Gilda's dog, Sparkle. And this little girl, Ruth from St. Lucia, was drawing the Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana character, which is like logo for Gilda's Club. And I said, what are you drawing? And she said, oh, I'm drawing Gilda. I mean, she had no idea who Gilda was, but she knew Gilda. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So I went to Louis Stefani, who's the head of Gilda's Club, and I said, you know, I think I want to do a film about Gilda. And, you know, you say you want to do a film, but you don't really think you want to, you don't really know, like, you're going to do a film. And she said, well, I'll connect you to Alan Zweibel, Gilda's writing partner from SNL and good friend. And she did, like, that night, and Alan responded back and he said, oh, come and film me and my wife Robin in like three days because we're going away afterwards. So the film kind of just started like that. And I filmed Alan and Robin and it just kind of happened like that. Once I started little by little getting different interviews with different friends of Gilda's, it just sort of happened spontaneously. What year was that? Do you remember? It was about four and a half years ago. For the first two years, it was really sort of an on-again, off-again thing. Like, I would work on the film when I wasn't working on commercials, and I would get back to it, or it would start again when I got another interview. So, though it was a long process, the first few years was really not a real committed, you know, it was a part-time thing. Well, what was it that pushed you into making it what I imagine ended up being a full-time job for a while? Money and funding is really difficult when it's your first film. And also, I didn't know, I had never had to raise money before. So I didn't know the difficulty of doing that. So at one point, I was just going to finish the film with what I had. And if it was just a film for Gilda's Club, then that would be great too. But at some point, Michael Radner, who had been a big supporter of the film in every sense, financially, emotionally, gave me access to Gilda's boxes that had been in storage since she passed away. And once I saw Gilda had done a um, a film of her ninth chemotherapy, and once I had got access to the personal things of Gilda's, that became like, oh my God, this could be a really good film. Like this could be a film told from Gilda's point of view. That was when it became a real film. Is that where those audio tapes came from? The audio in the film is made up of 22 different mediums of audio tapes. But the original impetus to really tell the story from Gilda's point of view were audio tapes that she had recorded for her book, It's Always Something. And that was how she made her preparation. She would talk into the recorder or she would have people interview her. And those were amazing. That was like 32 hours of Gilda telling her life story. But there was some problems too. The tapes were severely damaged and each tape had a different problem and each there were some things that were clear on the tapes and there were some things that couldn't be used. 
So that was um, the first rendition of the film, like a rough assembly was with these really bad audios and um, subtitles. And then, um, and my filmmaker friends thought that that was okay because they said, well, it's really Gilda's voice and she's really telling her story. And then I tested it with my regular friends and they were like, this is, you know, I can't look at the picture and read and I don't know what she's talking about. So that was the next level is to try to find interviews and supplement the audio so that Gilda could tell her own story. So some of that is from her audiobook also. And then some are from reporters who had kept their audio cassette tapes when they interviewed Gilda like 40 years ago, which was pretty amazing to find those. It must have been just such a technical hurdle to try to piece all those things together. At the beginning, uh, editors and friends and producers, everyone said, you know, we're going to have to get somebody in to read. Maybe we can mix it. And I was really adamant that I never wanted anyone to read Gilda's voice as if it was Gilda. Like that was really hard. And we tried like audio places throughout the world that was supposed to be the best. And then we did come across this genius. His name is Dominic Bartoli. And he was able to rescue some of the stories, not all of the stories, but he was able to rescue some of the bad audio. And then um, we had a big audio team when we went to mix that really spent a lot of time working on the dialogue and working on trying to make it a cohesive voice. So that was a lot of technical work and also a lot of weeding through the materials of what we could use and what we couldn't use and what we wanted to use and what Gilda could tell herself and what other people would have to supplement or, you know, how we use the journals as another voice. So, yeah, there was a lot of technical. I mean, I had amazing editors. So I'm very grateful to them. This was your first feature documentary. So what were some of the other hurdles that you really had to overcome? You talked about the financing. You talked about some of the technical stuff. What were some of the other things, the challenges that you managed to overcome to bring this project to fruition? I think when you're a first-time filmmaker, it's really hard for people to take a chance on you, especially when there's money at stake. So that was really hard. So I had to kill his brother and family and friends and donations and bingo parties. And so raising the money to get to the, the film to a shape that um, people would be willing to risk. It was an expensive film in the end or expensive to me, especially since as a person who was always hired, I always had a budget. So when we finally shot everything, we had a really good trailer and then CNN came in and films to give us really the money that we were able to get through post-production. So that was, I was very grateful to them. So that was a hurdle was going through taking a chance on somebody who hasn't done a film before. And then other hurdles were um, just getting people to be interviewed, even Gilda's friends. Like one person led to another person who led to another person. So it wasn't like we shot everything in a month. It was over the period of the year that the interviews led to, you know, somebody having a good interview, like a Paul Schaefer would have a good interview, so it'd be more comfortable for Lorraine to have, you know, Lorraine would do it. And when Amy Poehler did the interview, I think it was comfortable enough for maybe for for Martin Short and the other modern-day comedians. So I think it was also just an interest, and I think that's, that's probably common. There's so much footage, pre-existing footage. I'm not going to ask you about, you know, 
rights usage and all that kind of stuff. I imagine that was probably a, a legal mess that had to be sorted through. But just to find some of that footage, just you know, some of the, the, the early clips, especially especially her days in the theater when she was still in college. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. I'm so glad that you were able to find it. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I became like the Gilda detective. And any time I heard that Gilda was anywhere, myself or my team or my friends, we would try to get, oh, we heard Gilda was in San Francisco and um, found something in the library. And then only somebody who, who lived there could have access to it. So it was really being a Gilda detective. And what's so interesting is now that the film's done, people have come up to me who knew Gilda or met her at places. And I was like, I didn't know Gilda was there. Like, I thought she knew I knew everything. But um, so it was really... And also, there were so many things that we searched for that we were sure we, we could find that we never found. You know, like, go was at the Rose Bowl and we were at Pasadena and we looked for footage and um, the cast was in New Orleans and we tried to find other stuff. And Gilda performed in camp and we were hoping somebody had footage of that. So it seems like a lot, but there's so much we wish that we could have had. Were there any interviews that you're trying to get that just never came through? Well, I mean, we wanted more of the mod- the cast members from SNL. We always did want Bill Murray in it because he was such a big part of, you know, he came up in all the interviews during the Saturday Night Live time. And it would have been good to have it from his point of view instead of, you know, our point of view, the filmmaker's point of view. But even Bill's closest friends had told us that we'd never get him for an interview. It would have been great to have him. It's funny. As I'm talking to you, I think it's the same week that the uh, that documentary about Bill Murray's stories, where the the cover look he looks like the Yeti, you know, like he is the stranger that passes through and nobody knows when he's going to be, where he's going to be. Yeah, I saw the film, and when I saw the film, I totally understood. Oh, well, that's what Bill was like. Like it really gave me an under- understanding of. Oh, of course, I'd never get him for a sit down interview because that was one of the things the director always wanted really wanted to get him and never could, you know, and, and realized that that's just how Bill is. And, and sort of, you know, we both kind of have that Bill story. How did you make your decisions when it came to what story to tell? You even talked about how this originally was going to be more about, you know, her cancer center and that there are these many facets to Gilda Radner. How did you ultimately decide this is the story that I'm going to end up telling? Well, I knew I wanted to do like a life story from beginning to end. So I knew that that was kind of important. And I kind of, we worked with other structures and chronological seemed like the best, the best point. So I guess that was, the, you know, the, the skeleton of it is how far could Gilda tell her story on her own with her audio? How could other people who were interviewed add to her story? In her diaries where we use the animated type, those were the only times that I heard that story, that part of the story about her eating disorder, about her sense of loneliness. She never talked about that in the audio. People kind of really didn't talk about it either or wanted to talk about it or even kind of know what Gilda was going through. So it was kind of a mismatch of trying to get the main points in her story, trying to get her inner life. I also love how she developed her characters. So it was going through what, how Gilda talked about comedy and trying to match you know, the sketches that go with what she's talking about. But I really loved how um, she developed her characters, too. So it's kind of a, you know, combination of everything. And then I did a lot of testing of cuts of the film to people. 
to see their reactions. And as I said, I had a really great edit team. Whereas I came from, I always came from the emotional side. They came from a, a more like, well, that's great, but we don't have the footage for that. So or we don't have that material. So it was a really good balance. Because when you get to know somebody so well, sometimes you forget what materials you have that, that you'd love to tell that, but you don't have anything that substantiates that side of the story. The movie, the way that it fits together, it feels like a Jenga puzzle. It feels like if you take away one piece, the whole thing would collapse because everything just feels like it's put in place the right way. So what were some of those other cuts like? The first cut was before I had the material. So I tested that, and the person, I tested it with a really great filmmaker, and they said it was paleographic, which I don't even know what the word meant, but it means like only good things you're talking about. So I always kind of kept that in mind. Then there was the version I said with the subtitles, and then there was a version that was more cancer-heavy, that the cancer section was longer, because Gilda did go through a lot. Even my friends who love, like, depressing things felt devastated at the end of the film. So that was something we kind of worked our way back from trying to figure out how to not, not to leave the audience feeling really like, oh, my God, this is so depressing that she's gone. So that was a real challenge. I don't imagine that you ever met her. So how do you feel now knowing her so well? Well, I mean, it was a real privilege. I mean, if you're going to spend all this time with somebody, Gil was a really good, positive person to spend time with. She was funny. She found the um, humor and any, you know, in the darkest of times, she was a good friend, you know, and then there's this sadness that, you know, things you learn about, I learned about her that she never felt pretty. And, you know, to me, she has the most beautiful smile. And you post a picture of Gilda smiling at people just loved her. You know, that's a little sadness that I don't know if Gilda ever really knew how much she was loved. So what are the plans now with the movie? Because I know that it's been touring around and it even showed here in Detroit, which uh, people love because she's a native. So now what uh, happens with the film? It opens September 21st in over 50 theaters throughout the country, which is pretty exciting. It's a limited release, so if we have a really good weekend, hopefully it opens broader and then it goes on demand. And then eventually it goes on CNN in 2019. So there should be great opportunities to see the film. I loved um, showing it in Detroit, her hometown. So it still seems like the spirit of old Detroit in some sense. So I really enjoyed, you know, I, I really loved all her friends that I met from Detroit and her family. Hopefully people will like it and um, it'll find its audience. So about for you, what's next for you? I've been working you know, talking to people and, and researching what I would want my next film to be. And and I would like to do something similar in the sense of a really inspiring person who left behind a lot of archives. That's like the thing. It's like, I can't imagine doing a film, and you know, without um, having access to something special. So I think after the weekend, um, the weekend box office, I can really, really start researching the other films that, that I want to work on. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. It was great talking to you, too.
it right. Understand? Listen, I'm a woman. I am free. I'm respected. I'm not Hold getting that. Hold my head up high. Understand? Okay, Rico. No, tell I thought, me. I'll tell, tell her. I thought I was getting that across. Oh, well, Tomato sauce. People are going to be here. Clients. And uh, we're trying to syndicate this internationally. Okay. Dear, it's it's important. I understand. I, I was thinking of melody and not meaning. I'm sorry. I was concentrating on the melody and everything. Right. Okay. So you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Okay. Thanks. All right. Honey, I think what they need is a little more anthem quality, you know? Okay. Free, well, you know, it's all up, everything ends up, you know, it's not, you know, don't sing it. We've got the song. Rico's written the song. We need the talent. Okay, all I'm, want to do. We've got it's okay. All right, guys, I can do it. Right. It's a perfect key. I'm fine. I don't know what happened there. I just went, went a little haywire there. Okay, let's go again. One, two, three, four. What was wrong? Jane, uh, talk to her, please. You're Let's using your wine voice. I wasn't using my wine well, voice. So I wasn't. Voice. All right. Paul, don't bring, don't bring. Can you do it? I know the melody. Yes. I know the melody. Fine. If you Reach don't mind. Okay. Okay. Clear. Clear. All right. I know. If you keep hopping and jiggling around like that. Well, I'm not going to do that on the day that I do it. I'm just doing it now. It helps me get into the meaning and the rhythm of the song. Again. He's saying for right now. Oh, he's shooting right now. Can you sing the lyrics? Yes, I can. And sing the lyrics and look at the camera. Just dear, I'm a woman. You understand that? I understand. All right, could you let me start it again? I'll start. Just start it again. All right, just get a lower key. Those high notes. No, I don't need a lower key. Just start it again. All right, just start it. Two. Keep her eyes on the red light. I thought she could hack it, but uh, it looks like she's having a tantrum. I'm not having a tantrum. I can't. Oh, the twins could sing it. I can do it if you let me do it the way that I want to do it. Why don't you let me do it the way I want to do it? I will. I'm sorry. We'll come back.